Well, if you have a Bible, take them and turn them to um, the second passage that Holly read for us earlier in the book of Mark. If you were new or uh, if you have been here, let me remind you of where we are and what we're doing. We're in a series on the book of Mark. And the book of Mark is, it is the fast and the furious. Uh, God in the person of Jesus Christ has ripped open the cosmos. That's Mark 1.11. He is invaded. And the next thing you know, he is going around healing all sorts of diseases. He is casting out demons. And, uh, and he comes into a territory that is contested. That there are conflicts that occur. There's a tension that's building. And the tension is building throughout this section that we have been looking at. He heals a paralytic, and people are upset that he says that he forgives sins. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, and people are upset that he is associating with such as these. And we continue in uh, our story this morning, looking at three more scenes of conflict. Conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. So as we consider that, let me, um, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, the world that you invaded is not uncontested. It is a contested territory, but you are a great victor. And so we pray that you would rend the heavens and come down. That every evil that assails us and mangles us and distorts your intention for our lives... would be conquered by your love. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, in his book, God is Not Great, the late Christopher Hitchens wrote, Religion Poisons Everything. Elsewhere, he had, in an argument with Tony Blair, he said that religion causes secularism, division, strife, disagree, sectarianism, right? division, strife, disagreement, war, poverty, and a host of societal evils. And Hitchens, he is not alone in thinking this way. A 2013 article in the Huffington Post said that amongst young people in Britain, uh, the majority believed that religion was a greater cause of evil in the world than it is a force for good. And you can see why they come to that conclusion just looking at the news over the last couple weeks. Where people in both the names of Islam and Christianity have killed others. It might surprise you, but I actually agree with this assessment. I think that religion tends towards oppression and violence. I really do. 
Because what religion says most often is if there's a group that thinks we have the truth and we're right and other people are wrong and they don't have the truth and therefore we live the truth, then it tends to make us think that we are better than others. And if we think we're better than others and we seclude from others, then we stop humanizing others and we stop humanizing others. It makes it much easier to oppress them because we don't know them. They're a label. And I think religion actually tends towards that. But it's worth asking the question, what is religion and what do we mean by it? Fleming Rutledge in her sermon, No Religion Here Today, said, Religion moves from the human being to God. The arrow points from earth to heaven. The key ingredient in religion is the spiritual capacity and development of the religious person. This is such a familiar idea to all of us, whether we are believers or not, that it comes as quite a shock to discover from the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments that God is not interested in religion. Fleming Rutledge says God is not interested in religion. And she can say that because, well, the Bible, it is not unaware of the dangers of religion. Which is why some of the most severe critiques of, the, of religion happen in the Bible. Exhibit A, the prophets. If you read through the prophets, you will see some of the most devastating critiques of all time against religion. Exhibit B, Jesus. Jesus finds himself in the stories that we're reading constantly in conflict with the religious leaders and the religious establishment of his day. And it's not hard to see why. I mean, he said, we saw a couple weeks ago, he said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick and the religious, they usually consider themselves righteous and not healthy. And so you can see that there's this, this conflict, the conflict which at the end of our story shows and previews for us, gets him killed. And so, what this means, if we stop and think about it, is that there must be a key distinction, a fundamental difference between the ministry and message of Jesus and the ministry and message of religion. As much overlap as there may be on the surface between the two, there is a key distinction and key difference. And we see that difference arise in the stories that, we, that were read today and what we're looking at in at least three ways. Three ways that I want to look at in which the, men, the ministry and message of Jesus distinguish itself from religion. And here's the first. The ministry and message of Jesus distinguishes itself from religion uh, simply in the party that it produces. I don't know if you know this about Jesus, if you're new to Christianity, but Jesus loved a good party. He was always partying, like all the time. Uh, in fact, if a party wasn't good enough, he made it better. The first miracle that he ever performed was to turn water into wine when the water ran out at the party, right? So it's like Jesus comes to your party and he sees that you are serving, I don't know, Capri Sun. And he says, I don't think so. We're going with champagne. Voila. But because Jesus, he loved it. In fact, he partied so much... Uh, that people kind of thought that it was inappropriate. 
He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And, and the inappropriateness of it we can see in our text. Verse 18. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, they're asking right on the heels of Jesus being at a big party at Matthew's house. They're asking, look, why don't you fast? In other words, what they mean by that is, why are you feasting? Why are you partying so much? And why are your disciples doing that? Now, in order to answer that question, let's just ask the question, um, why do we feast and why do we fast? Well, why do we feast? We feast to celebrate something. Like the end of a long career. The attainment of a goal. We feast at the promotion. We feast at the graduation. We also feast to announce something, like an engagement. Uh, picture it with me. Fred has been unemployed for two years, and he has applied to countless jobs, some 500. And it is wearing on his sense of self-worth. He is looking to hear back from another job today. He's hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. And it just hasn't been wearing on Fred, also his wife, Carrie. It's been trying on her too, both, both the financial burden of it, but also the emotional burden of it. Coming home and consoling Fred day in and day out. And so she is also hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. In fact, this has been such a trial that she has lost faith and hope and love. Well, all of a sudden she gets a text and it's from Fred. She's kind of afraid to pick it up. You know, he has a special uh, alert on her phone, so she knows it's from him. And she doesn't want to turn it over because she knows what it's going to say. But she flips it over, much to her surprise, it says, Put on your dancing shoes, honey. We're going out tonight. What was Fred saying? He was saying, I got the job. He was announcing something. He was celebrating something. He says, we're going to feast tonight. We're going to party because this is worth celebrating. And that is, that is why you feast. But why do you fast? Well, you fast, especially in the Old Testament, you see, you fast because you're sad. You fast to mourn, sackcloth and ashes. You fast because the situation that you're in is not right. And you fast over your, situa your broken situation, or you fast because of your sin. Well, John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples, they both fasted for these reasons. They fasted because the Romans were ruling and they were colonized by them. They fasted because there wasn't a Davidic king on the throne. They fasted because they were oppressed. They fasted because God had not fulfilled his promises, and the glory that left the temple in Ezekiel never came back after the exile. They fasted because God was not with them. 
And so it was right to fast. It was right to mourn. And so why isn't Jesus fasting in that situation? Because they were also fasting because of the sin that led to that God-forsaken situation. So why isn't Jesus fasting? I mean, to them, what Jesus is doing is totally inappropriate. He is cheering during a moment of silence. He is dancing at a funeral. What are you doing, Jesus? Why aren't you fasting? Well, look at the answer, verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Why is Jesus not fasting? Because he doesn't think he's at a funeral. Jesus believes he's at a wedding. And that the bridegroom has come. Throughout the Old Testament, this image of a bridegroom is used for God. And especially in promises of God returning to deliver his people. And the way he would deliver them is that he would marry them. And there would be a feast, a celebration, a party. And Jesus, he's saying, God has come. Isaiah 62, 5, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And Jesus is saying, God has returned to his people. God has come to marry them. God has come to wed them. And he sings over them. And because of that, it is not the time to mourn. It is not the time to fast. It is the time to feast. It is the time to party. He goes on to give two more analogies. One is about uh, textiles and one is about wine. Neither of which make a lot of sense to us today. But the fundamental purpose of both of them is this. That there is a fundamental incompatibility between the old, what was, and the new, what has come. And he's saying that I have brought something new. I have brought a new kingdom. And my kingdom brings in a new reality. And therefore, everything's got to be different, including fasting. Jesus isn't against fasting, but he says your fasting is not going to be the same. It's going to be different. You see, the reason why the Pharisees fasted is they fasted. Because they believed that through their piety and through their fasting and through um, their difficult lives, God would look on them and God would bless them. That if they fasted enough, that God would see their fasting and see their sorrow and God would say, okay, I will do something for you. I will bring about the promises. I will bless you. I will come. And, um, and that's what religion always says. Religion says, if you do these things, then God will bless you. Religion says, if you beat yourself up enough, if you can just be, not enjoy life enough, then you can be more spiritual and you'll be in a better place before God. You'll have his favor upon you. And... And it's even Christians who fall into this. Do you know anyone like this? Maybe some of you are like this. But Jesus said, no. God didn't bring the party because of your fast. God brought the party because he brought the party because he brought the party. God brought the party because God is invading this world in his own sovereign will. And in so doing, he says, there is no prerequisites to this. No. 
He comes in and he says, do you know what time it is? It is time for joy and for celebration. So let me ask you, is your life characterized by joy and celebration? Can you laugh and be light? Or is everything always heavy? Is everything always serious? I mean, who has time to party when you're trying to get God to recognize you for all your good works? But you know, here's the thing about religion. I've never seen religion make anyone dance or sing or shout. I've never heard, man, pray more. Yeah! Read your Bible more. All right! If you could, if you could just serve more people and show mercy more. Yes! Exciting! I'm going to do that. I'm so excited about this list of things that you've given me to do. Have you ever seen anyone do that? I've never seen anyone dance and sing by giving them a list of things to do. But you know what will cause them to dance and sing? Jesus who comes and says, here's the party and guess what? You don't have to clean yourself up. That's my job. Here's the party and guess what? You don't have to qualify yourself. That's my job. Here's the party, and guess what? You can come as you are. You're not going to stay as you are, but you can come as you are because I am here to throw it. Well, can I bring anything? No, you cannot because it's all taken care of. That'll cause you to dance and sing and praise and even pray, but not as a list, as a desire. I once saw this. Um, I once saw this funny uh, slogan. It was a sign, and it said, "Beer, helping white people dance since 1837." <laughs> and uh, you know, the point is that beer is helping people who don't naturally dance dance. Well, let me tell you. Beer and Jose Cuervo combined have nothing on Jesus. The gospel has been causing non-natural dancers, heavy burdened souls, serious-minded people to dance and sing and be light and rejoice for 2,000 years. And it will continue to. Religion's never done that. See, the first way in which Jesus distinguishes his ministry from religion is in the party it produces. The second way in which Jesus distinguishes his ministry from the ministry of religion is in the rest that it provides. Verses 23 through 28 tell the story of Jesus and his disciples plucking grain in a field on the Sabbath. And that detail is very important, the Sabbath. The Israelites were commanded by God that they had to do no work, absolutely no work on the Sabbath so that they might rest and be refreshed. That's Exodus 23, 12. Uh, no work. They have to be diligent about doing no work. They have to be thorough about doing no work. They have to really work at doing no work. But what constitutes work? It's an important question. You know, the Bible really only gives a, a couple of examples. You couldn't build a fire. 
You couldn't take a burden out of your house. But, but, but that's not enough. I mean, it's at least that, but it's got to be more than that. I mean, what constitutes work? And it's a really important question because the Sabbath, it was... It was really emphasized. Above all else, God says, keep my Sabbath. In Exodus 31, 14, listen to this. Everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. So if you work, you die. But if you rest, you live and you're refreshed. So it's a good question. I mean, what does it mean? And, and what does it mean for us today? I mean, make it practical. We all want that, right? Come on, preacher. Make it practical. Tell me what this means for my life today. Give me some steps. Well, the Jews were no different. They wanted a first century practical application of the Sabbath. And you know, they had preachers who would give it to them. Their names were the Pharisees. And they came up with 39 practical ways to keep the Sabbath. Here are all the 39 ways to keep the Sabbath. This is how the law applies in our day, in our time. This is how you live it out. And so they, they accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath because they are breaking one, at least one of these 39 laws. Look, verse 24 of chapter 2. Look, why are they, that is your disciples, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're breaking the law. They're not resting. They're picking grain. The law that they were breaking was not the law to pick grain. You could pick grain if you were poor from the corners of fields. The law they were breaking is that they were doing it on the Sabbath, they said. Have you ever tried really hard to rest? What happened? I was at, uh, I was at our General Assembly last week. It was a very quick trip for me. I was only there for a couple days. I got in late one night. It was after midnight. I was jet-lagged. I was, had to find food. I was up very late that night, had to write a couple of emails, then I go to bed. The problem with this, that is that would be great, except for the fact that then I had to get up for a breakfast meeting the next morning, and that breakfast meeting was not on California time. I went to bed on California time. I did not get up on California time. So I was pretty tired the rest of the day. I was, had meeting after meeting after meeting, and then I had this little window in the afternoon. You know the window I'm talking about. It was the window where I could go back up to my hotel room and sneak in a nap. And so I was like, this is my window. I got to do it because I got more meetings tonight. So I went back up to my hotel room and I got everything ready. I shut the curtains. I got the, I got the air temperature just right. I mean, I was doing all the steps, right? I turned my phone on silence. I turned every, like, I put the do not disturb sign in. I like, I even like, you know, I got the right amount of clothes to be able to keep getting up, but not the right, so many clothes that you can't sleep. You know what I'm talking about. And I put the right amount of covers over me. I was ready to sleep. And so I set my alarm. It's going to go off in 30 minutes. In 25 minutes. Why am I not going to sleep? I just need to sleep. I need to sleep. Sleep, Kyle. Sleep. 20 minutes. I've only got 20 minutes left. 15 minutes. I've only got 15 minutes. I'm not going to be able to rest. Seven minutes. Five minutes. Ah. And then the housekeeping called. The housekeeping called. And they said, would you like us to clean your room? And I said, um, I suppose. I said, then remove the do not disturb sign. You know how you kill rest? By trying to force rest. 
that's what the Pharisees did. 39 rules to meticulously follow so that you can rest. And they were working really hard to rest. And that's what religion does. Religion gives us lots of rules and techniques to be whole, complete, refreshed, satisfied. I mean, that's the whole point of the Sabbath. God worked for six days, and on the seventh it said, he finished his labor and was refreshed. Now, that means that God was looking at the world that he made, and he was saying, it is very good, it is complete, it is whole, it is done. And I delight in that. And religion, it gives us steps that we might follow so that we can get to the place where we can say, I am whole, I am complete, I am done. It gives us all these self-help techniques that we can use. But you know the problem? We're never done. We're never, ever, ever done. And when I say religion, I'm not just talking about what you might think of as traditional religions. There was a, um, the old editor for, editor-in-chief for Cosmopolitan, Helen Gurley Brown, wrote a book uh, back in like the 60s called Sex and the Single Girl. It's about sexual liberation. And Judith Vorst, she, in the New York Times uh, review of books, she, um, she reviewed it and she gave an interesting critique of it. She says this, it seems that Miss Brown has a religion of her very own. She concerns guilt, uh, I'm sorry, she forbids guilt concerning sex, but she definitely believes in sin. Mrs. Brown used the word sin repeatedly to describe eating too much. She's equally hard on women who don't exercise according to her standard. And woe betide the poor soul who falls ill because she must have brought it on herself with unhealthy attitudes. What is Judith Viorst pointing out? She is pointing out that Helen Gurley Brown, for as much as she wants to reject traditional religiosity, at the same time has a religion of her own. And that religion is be smarter, look better, diet right, be fit, wear the right thing, and, oh, by the way, don't have guilt about traditional moral values. That's her religion. And if you do that, you will come into your own. But here's the problem. With traditional moral value religious structures, untraditional religious moral value structures, here's the problem. We never really arrive, do we? T.S. Eliot, in his play, The Cocktail Party, said, we are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of ourselves. And it never gives up. It's unrelenting. It's on and on and on and on. The Pharisees, they were killing rest by trying to force rest. Rest became a work for them. And here's the question. What happens when the command that's supposed to bring life brings death? What happens when the command not to work becomes a work? What happens when the very purpose and spirit of the law is undermined by the letter of the law? What happens then? Well, that's Jesus' point. And his response, look verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, 
and also gave it to those who were with him. And then Jesus says, verse 27, the Sabbath was not, I'm sorry, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, look, the whole point of the Sabbath is that it's supposed to be restorative. It's supposed to bring life. It's supposed to uh, refresh you. And so how could doing something that does those things actually undermine those things? You, you have to understand the purpose of the law and the spirit of the law and not simply the letter of the law. The purpose of the Sabbath was not to take your life, but to restore your life. But how did it do so? Because we've already said that if you try to force rest, you kill rest. So how can a command not to rest actually cause you to rest? I mean, if trying to force rest kills rest, then how do you get rest? Well, it's interesting that when Moses delivers the Ten Commandments and then delivers them again in Exodus and then delivers them again in Deuteronomy, he gives two rationale for, two different rationale for the Sabbath command. One is this, God worked for six days and then rested. Therefore, you work for six days and rest. In other words, the Sabbath is there to remind you of creation, to remind you that God made you. And then the second way, the second reason in Deuteronomy that's given is, he says, God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and he delivered you from all that work. Therefore, keep the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is given that you might know that God redeems you. So the Sabbath is given to pound these two truths into the people of God's heads and hearts. God made you. God redeemed you. God does it all. And that's how you rest. And what Jesus is saying is that I'm here to give you rest. Because Jesus, you know, he got to the end of the sixth day and he cried out something. It is finished. At the end of the sixth day. At the end of the sixth day, he cried out, it is finished, and he rested. In the tomb, he rested on the seventh day. And if you try to work, on the seventh day, after Jesus finishes his work on the sixth day, well, that's death. And the one who does not keep the Sabbath will surely die. You see, the only way to get rest, you can't achieve it. You can only receive it. And Jesus came to give us the rest, to say, I made you, I redeemed you, I finished it all. Rest in me. That's what I think he's saying amongst other things when he says in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I think he's saying, I am the sovereign Lord. And rest is not there to be achieved. Rest can only be given. And I sovereignly distribute it based on my own work. And so you can either enter Jesus' rest and you can die to your works on the, on the seventh day. Or you can work and you can work and you can work on the seventh day. But guess what? The one who works on the seventh day, he will surely die. It will kill you. 
And some of us know that. And some of us have been working and working and working and working until it drives you all the way down to the ground. And then you learn to rest because you can't work anymore on the seventh day. And Jesus brings you in to his rest. See, religion doesn't provide rest. It will work you to the bone. But Jesus does. So first we see that the ministry of Jesus, it's different from religion and the party that it produces. It's different than religion and the rest that it provides. And finally, it's different from religion. And we can see that in the conflict that it incites. And this is chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, which were not read for you. But let me read them now. Again, he entered the synagogue, that is Jesus, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So the scene that we have here is a conflict. They're in the synagogue, and verse 1, Jesus enters. He's on one side. On the other side, there are the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And in the middle, there's a man with a shriveled hand. And it's a test, we find, verse 2, that they were seeking to trap him. They were seeking to catch him, doing something wrong. And Jesus, he throws down the gauntlet. Do you see? He tells the man, verse 3, come here, as if to draw attention to what he is doing. And then he provokes the Pharisees with this question, verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And Jesus is picking a fight. Because they didn't believe that it was okay. They, they actually believed that it was okay to save a life on the Sabbath. They did. But what Jesus is about to do, it's not a life-threatening injury. And so, they said, you shouldn't do that kind of work on the Sabbath. And, and also, they also said that it was okay to kill on the Sabbath. They said it was okay to kill. That is, it is okay to take up holy war on the Sabbath. And in the Messianic age, that will be Okay. They, they thought, because it will establish God's righteousness and peace. That is, you can work on the Sabbath as long as you're working to establish the kingdom of God. So Jesus, he asked them this question, but then he knows that the letter of the law cannot undermine the spirit of the law and that the point of the Sabbath is for restoration, and that's what his ministry is all about. And so he says to the man, Stretch out your hand. Now, now he's taunted them even further because notice he didn't touch him. He doesn't do anything to heal him directly. And it says the man was healed, passive tense. So they can't catch Jesus and yet Jesus accomplishes what he wanted to accomplish. And now they're upset. So what do they do? 
Well, they have a meeting, verse 6. And they conspire together. They conspire together to see whether or not or how they can destroy him. See, the, the message of religion, it can never sit well with the message of the good news of God rescuing sinners in Jesus Christ. Because religion says, come, do these things, and prove yourself, and be righteous. But Jesus, he said, I didn't come to call the righteous. Well, that would make religion pointless. If Jesus is calling not the righteous, if he's calling not the healthy, but the sick, that would make religion pointless. That would make wellness programs pointless. Exactly. And that's the problem. The message of grace is always a threat to religion. And it's a threat here, and the only thing they can do is seek to destroy him. But the conflict is more serious than just that. We get this interesting insight into the emotional life of Jesus in verse 5. It says that before he commanded the man to stretch out his hand, he looked around at them, that is, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and it says that he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now that seems paradoxical. Anger I can understand. Anger makes sense. I mean, they are seeking to undermine the ministry of Jesus. They're seeking to destroy him, and they don't care who loses out in the meantime, including this man with the shriveled hand. Anger I can understand, but grief? To say that you're grieved means that in, in, this, in this context, in this word, it means that you sympathize with, that you empathize with. To grieve means that you take pity on someone, it, 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 that you feel sorry for their situation. Uh, to grieve indicates that, that the hardness of their heart was not just something that they enacted on themselves, but something that has been afflicted upon them. How do we deal with that? What's going on here? Well, I think that the clue to the answer is right there at the end of verse 6. Notice that they say that they're seeking or plotting how to destroy him. Now, that's an interesting way of put it, to destroy him. Why didn't they say put him to death? Why do they say destroy him? You know, we've heard that phrase, destroy, earlier in the gospel. It's the first time Jesus has a conflict with the demons. He sees a man on the side of the road, or in the synagogue, I mean. And in chapter 1, verse 24, the demons recognize him and they say, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And the Pharisees tried to destroy him. You see, what Mark is doing here is he's trying to emphasize something that I've been trying to impress upon you through this whole series. That the conflict is much bigger than you think. And that behind the religious leaders are the demonic powers. 
And that's the real conflict that's going on. That's the greater conflict that's going on. That this is the two enemies that are trying to fight one another and destroy one another. And the Pharisees, they have been co-opted by the devil. That's why later on in verse 31, we get this irony. See, in verse 31 of chapter 3, the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus of being in possession of the devil. And all the while, they're actually the ones in his grip. Some of you will know that my favorite uh, author, my favorite author, is Flannery O'Connor. And uh, among other things, one of the things that I really appreciate about Flannery O'Connor and love about her is her understanding of evil and her depiction of evil. I think she gets it more than most. And, um, and Ralph Wood, who's a professor at Baylor University of Theology and Literature, he, he puts to words what I find so compelling about Flannery O'Connor. He says, For all that is traditional in her conception of Satan, O'Connor is concerned not to make him obvious, lest he be dismissed as a mere bogeyman. O'Connor is concerned not to make him obvious, lest he be, uh, he be dismissed as a mere bogeyman. See, what Flannery O'Connor understood about evil and about the devil is this. The devil works through deception. He's the subtlest of all the beasts of the field. And the devil actually has no ontology. And neither does evil. It is that great uncreated real reality. It, it, it can't have a reality of its own. It has to only twist and pervert God's good reality. The, the devil can't create anything. He can only distort the truth. Evil cannot do anything. It's not, having, it's not, it's not that we live in a dualistic universe. See, can, it, Augustine got this. But here's what that means. That the devil must take on specific concrete forms. And it can't be some kind of red man with horns. Because when you think of the devil like that as a separate entity, then here's what you do. You dismiss it. But O'Connor got, no. The devil is subtle. The subtlest of all the beasts of the fields he uses. He embodies himself in subtle ways all the time. And the subtlest of all those ways I think she got is that he embodies himself in religion. I mean, what better to use than good old-fashioned, homegrown religion to entrap and enslave people? And so, demonic evil can take many forms, many religious forms. It can look like that church who decides to enact a dress code in order to protect or keep people from lust, and what they end up doing is keeping people from Jesus. It can look like that family or the Christian school that I grew up in that motivated, not by God's grace and glory, but by, primarily by guilt and fear, seeks to protect children from the big bad world. And subtly... And slowly gives them a sense that 
Jesus is really for the righteous. And we're so different than them. It can look like, it can look like that strict dad who is so concerned that his daughter doesn't speak up or act up during church or devotion time so that she honors God. It can take a myriad of forms, even secular forms. It can look like the secular religious dogma who in the name of compassion and liberation takes the lives of our youngest and our oldest, the unborn and the elderly, and those who are disabled. Flannery O'Connor once said, when we start thinking that suffering is the greatest evil in the world and not sin, atrocities are going to happen. Because in the name of compassion, we'll kill. And that's exactly what's happened in our late modern Western world. But here's what she also realized. She realized that such evil requires both anger and empathy. In her novel, The Violent Bear It Away, she has this character named Francis Tarwater. And Francis Tarwater starts developing, he's, he, he grows up uh, under the tutelage of a prophet, and he is basically to take on the mantle of a prophet. And as he is... Um, as he's going, though, the, the prophet who is his mentor dies, and he starts hearing these voices. And you think that these voices are just the internal monologue on his head, his, his subconscious. But, but then what you start to realize, and what they reveal themselves to be, is nothing less than the devil himself. And Ralph Wood, who I mentioned earlier, he, he says, Here lies O'Connor's signal theological breakthrough. She depicts... This subjective voice speaking to Francis Tarwater as arising from within the boy's own mutinous will, but also as assaulting him from without as a satanic force. That is, the evil that Francis Tarwater experiences is both something that arises from within his own mutinous will, and also a force from without. It arises from within, and therefore it requires anger and judgment. Hence Jesus' anger. But it also arises as a force from without, which one is enslaved to, as a power, and hence compassion, and sympathy, and grief. You see... What she held together and what the Bible holds together is two things that we have a hard time holding together. We either say someone is a culpable moral agent or they're a victim. And the Bible says we're both. We're both. Because the conflict is bigger than we think. And if we're both, then that means that the solution that's required will require, it will, the problem requires a solution that is big enough to handle both. It is big enough to deal with the moral, with utmost moral seriousness, our own culpable atrocities, but it also has a deep enough compassion 
and sympathy to rescue us and deliver us. You know, that's what the ministry of Jesus was all about. That's what the cross is all about. For there on the cross, God with utmost moral seriousness took every one of our crimes, deadly serious, and punished them. And there on the cross, God sympathized with, us, sympathized with us, entered into our weakness, entered into our plight, and he delivered us from the forces of evil. And you know something? Religion has never done that. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.